Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 20. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode features my conversation with Jessica Robleski of Wheeling Jesuit University in Wheeling, West Virginia. I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Robleski while I was visiting Wheeling Jesuit University. And in our conversation, we talk about her background being born Catholic, but raised Protestant in in the Church of Christ, and her eventual return to Catholicism. We talk about the relationship between research and advocacy, and we talk about how one's experience of the mundane, the everyday, uh, shapes and affects how one thinks about ethics. As always, you can leave comments for us on iTunes or on the blog, and thank you very much for listening. Well, we're here today for the Daily Theology Podcast with Jessica Robleski of Wheeling Jesuit University. Thank you for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. And the first thing I like to talk to people about is like how you came to do theology, how it came of interest to you, how you kind of got into it. Well, it depends on how long of an answer that you want <laughs> and how autobiographical. Go, go as long as you want. Well, the church was always very significant to me growing up. And when I say the church, I don't mean the Catholic church, which I'm active in today. I guess I have kind of a complicated spiritual autobiography, but grew up going to a uh, relatively conservative, very Bible-based church. And it was, Hmm. it was at the center of our lives. You know, it was like several times a week we were there And I would say at kind of a young age, I was aware of the challenges of biblical literalism (laughs) and, and how, when you, you have a, a tradition that's based on denying that it's a tradition Mm -hmm. and that it's only based on the Bible, there are certain kinds of contradictions and uh, inconsistencies. Was that, that, was there like a particular like Bible story that really got you or... Like an event or like something that was like, was like the crystallizing moment of well, it for you? Well, you know what it was, and I'm sure I, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to be generous here to this particular <laughs> denomination because I do think that there was a lot that was life-giving, a lot, and is in, in this particular tradition. The issue was instruments and worship. Mm. So, and, and, and honestly, one of the things that I'm thankful for is learning to sing harmonies and acapella mm-hmm. music and this kind of thing. But the churches of Christ take very seriously the idea that they're based on New Testament worship and the New Testament doesn't explicitly condone instruments mm-hmm. in worship. Never mind the fact that they're throughout the Old Testament and <laughs> in worship and and in the kind of eschatological worship of God they're not mentioned in, you know, Matthew through, mm-hmm. well, basically, the, they're not mentioned in Acts. Mm-hmm. And mm. so that always just seemed really weird to me <laughs> growing up. And, you know, and it's like I'd go to church other places and I thought, hey, it's kind of nice when people have a piano or a guitar or other kinds mm-hmm. of things. And, and, and there were debates over, so, so there was the instrumental worship and there was also, it was a teetotaling mm-hmm. kind of, kind of culture. Sure. And so there were all of these attempts, these hermeneutical attempts at trying to explain away Jesus turning water into wine <laughs> and all of these other kinds of sure. things that are in the scripture that were 
really rooted in this tradition that grew out of 19th century America, mm -hmm. trying to be the first century church. And so I think, again, like by the time I was in high school and maybe even before, I was sort of aware mm -hmm. of that. Also, my father didn't go to church with us. Hmm. So it was always just my mom and my three brothers and I. And the church was very much a family for us. But, you know, my, I also loved my dad. And so I think I was aware, you know, there, was, there wasn't a seamless vision of, like, life in the church, which I think allowed me or, or caused me to think about, well, is my dad mm -hmm. going to hell or those kinds of questions as well. When I went to college, I, and, and at that time, also because of the church's positions on women in any kind of active mm -hmm. leadership, I was sort of like, I don't think that this is for me anymore. Was it just hard to see your, like a future for yourself in it? In, in the church. In the church, yeah. 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 And not that, not, and not that I was like disavowing Christianity entirely, that kind of came later. But I was like, I need to find something that mm -hmm. it kind of works with a, a broader vision or something. Sure. So went to college, thought I wanted to be a writer, was interested in doing kind of creative nonfiction type writing, mm -hmm. which arguably is still what I do. <laughs> um, but, but those classes just never really, like the English classes, the writing classes, they were like, okay. Mm -hmm. But I took an intro to New Testament class my freshman year. And then my sophomore year took a class called Religion and Ethics. Mm -hmm. And both of those courses just, like, I think ignited something. I was like, oh, you mean I can study this stuff that in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a different kind of way and... And it was all, they were always just the most engaging and fascinating courses. And it, <laughs> insofar as I have a vocation as a theologian, it's been something that has emerged very, very, like, bit by bit, <laughs> you know, and, and almost unintentionally. Uh -huh. even, even the decision to go to – so I decided to major in religious studies, thinking I'd probably go on and do something, you know, maybe, again, related to public relations or – law or I didn't know exactly mm -hmm. a very practical career mm, yeah yeah like don't worry everybody I'm going to grad school <laughs> and I got you know and then I I spent a summer teaching kind of like an advanced high school mm -hmm. summer program and I was teaching stuff on ethics and did a couple days on kind of religion and ethics and I was like this is really awesome I really like this mm -hmm. I think I'm gonna see if I can do this sure you know so I applied to grad schools and was accepted and and I've just kind of taken it one step at a time always sort of feeling like well if this next thing doesn't work out if I don't get a job after grad school then I'll figure something figure out something different it wasn't but if a god keeps plan. no but if god keeps opening these doors and leading me in this particular way then I'm going to follow that so that's, hmm. I mean, that's kind of, it's, yeah, yeah. it's something that has emerged bit by bit and I think is very much grounded in something very personal. I mm -hmm. mean, just personal yeah. experience and yeah, wanting I, to figure things out. It's, it's interesting because your, your story maps so much onto my, my wife's 
experience because mm. like her her mom's side was church of christ mm. her father was sort of raised catholic but was lapsed when she was younger oh yeah totally and so, so they went to the church of christ growing up and yeah, their wife yeah. like, one worry like is my dad going to be saved or not? And, oh, yeah. And all that. like, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and my parents were actually both raised Catholic. Mm. And, you know, I when I, give my, when I give my kind of biography in short form, I say I was born Catholic and raised Protestant. Because I was baptized. <laughs> I was baptized at three mm-hmm. months old in the Catholic Church and raised Protestant, kind of just wandered for a few years and found my way back to mm-hmm. Catholicism. <laughs> So, yeah. When you when you took the New Testament class your freshman year, mm-hmm. was it more sort of confirming all of the like issues you'd been having or was it was it like a struggle to be like wait wait this is not like how I was sort of raised to read this or raised to engage with this? I found it like a real liberation from okay. a lot of the struggles because it was a kind of like a his, intro to historical critical mm-hmm. studies. Yeah. So in sort of presenting for the first time that you know, there weren't people sort of following Jesus around with a notepad and like, you know, this is what he's doing today. Sure. And so just having a kind of different vision of where scripture came from and how di- like the differences in worldviews mm-hmm. and contexts. And, you know, we talked a lot about both the Judaic background and I mean, it was your kind of classic Christian origins. Mm hmm. You know, Christian origins slash intro to biblical criticism type course. And there were, and I remember there were a lot of friends. I had had a lot of people I knew in the class who really struggled Mm -hmm. with it kind of shaking up their, their view of the Bible as inspired. And for me, it was actually, again, like very liberating, Mm -hmm. I think. Have you, have you taught scripture while in your, like while you've been a teacher at all? Not as like a scripture class, class, no. Just like in portions of other classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you in any way had that kind of similar experience uh, as the teacher in terms of students kind of wrestling with like this, like this is not the Bible. I don't know what you're doing. Oh yeah. 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 How do you, how do you manage that? Like, like do you, do you. I don't know. I, I'm I guessing you don't that call I, them. But, yeah, but like I, I can't say that I have a fully satisfactory way of managing it. I think often when there's a student who just because of their own conviction and background is really struggling with the idea that um, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch mm-hmm. and these kinds of things, I you know I guess I guess it depends on the student in some ways, but. Yeah, and and I can't say that I have like a fully satisfactory way of dealing with that, but sometimes sometimes it's a matter of pointing out aspects of the text themselves that mm-hmm. kind of prove to be difficult to understand if you don't understand the way that the the text was assembled. Sure. But then, you know, sometimes I have to kind of default to saying you need to understand this. <laughs> Even if you don't, you know, yeah. even if it's not going to shape your worldview. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a struggle. <laughs> and it, and the, the, the struggle with it, I mean, is, and I think that this is a general str- struggle uh, in, in what we do. I mean, particularly if you yourself are coming from a position of faith, mm-hmm. ultimately, but one that has been formed critically, mm-hmm. it can be very challenging to 
walk the line or find the balance between challenging and maybe shaking up some of students' unquestioned assumptions and causing a real crisis of yeah. faith. And, you know, and, and that's not to say that a crisis of faith isn't ultimately maybe a good thing and something that people need to do or go through or, <laughs> but, it's but scary too. you do, and you don't want to be that, you know, like, Oh yeah, that's the professor who, who like, ruined my faith. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it's like, we have these, you know, really earnest, naive students coming in and they're just, they are really excited and they're really in love with Jesus. And, and it's like, you don't want to quench that. But you want them to be more thoughtful mm-hmm. than about it and to yeah. not just sort of repeat back catchphrases. That, mm-hmm. And I don't, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to diminish, you know, what's often a very heartfelt, genuine experience. You know, so I, so I feel like it, pastorally, and I do, think, I do think of teaching theology to undergrads in the, my context mm-hmm. as something that is pastoral as well as academic at that pastoral level, sometimes it's like, okay, well, how, what am I doing here yeah. um, in this, you know, intro class where we're talking about historical criticism or divinity of Jesus and the resurrection and all of these kinds of questions and, and thinking about them differently than mm-hmm. they've had to think of them before. Yeah. One of the things I've, I've noted in my experience of teaching is thinking more in intentionally about like what is the sort of explicit question a student is asking and what is the deeper question that they're asking Mm -hmm. because sometimes it is it it is apparently like a straightforward question like what does the catholic church teach teach about xyz yeah Yeah. but the real question is like is there a place for me here Uh or am i okay or or something Uh along those lines yeah and and navigating that both in the classroom and out of the classroom and and whatnot has been a real challenge for me Mm-hmm. trying to think about like what what is it the student really needs in this moment yeah and, and you probably know like teaching ethics is hard too yeah you know for a lot of the same reasons uh-huh. is like except and i'm not sure sometimes i go back and forth between thinking like which ends up being kind of this a more fundamental challenge mm-hmm. is it like the challenge in to daily eating habits mm-hmm. or you know other kinds of ways of living life or is it the challenge to these kind of more fundamental things? And I had it this, probably varies from student to I student. I had this crystallizing moment in a class several years ago now where we were sort of doing like the ethics portion of the intro class. Mm-hmm. And the student asked me, like in, in the whole group, not after class, not after class, like in the mm-hmm. whole group, she was, mm-hmm. she was something like, um, she's like, I think factory farming is wrong and I still eat deli sandwiches. Am I a bad person? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I don't honestly remember quite what I said at the time, but I, I do remember thinking to myself, like, all right, we should go through this, like, step by step. Mm. And, like, wh- what is it you're really saying here? And, and that was a moment where I was sort of like, one, like, this issue of, like, how do I, how do I respond to students in their own particular situations? But also, like, on the teaching of ethics, like, mm-hmm. how, how is it that people are like reflecting on their decision-making process or the the values or commitments that they hold to. Yeah. And in, yeah. in, in teaching ethics since, it's been very striking how difficult it is for students to make, 
like to make a distinction between what is legal and what is moral Mm -hmm. or like what I have Mm -hmm. a right to do versus Mm -hmm. what I ought to do Mm -hmm. or, or especially like what I think I should do and what others think they should do and whether I can say anything about that. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there's a willingness in some situations to, you know, say something is a bad thing. It shouldn't be done, but a real discomfort with any like particular instance of that. Like I would never tell another person how to do this, but I wouldn't do this. Yeah. And yeah, it's been really striking to me, like well, how common that seems to be. Yeah, I don't know if that's I, your experience or not. Or... Uh, uh, certainly, yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I think that 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 all resonates and and kind of brings to mind also. Like I think that there's sometimes a challenge in articulating, like on one hand, an idea of conscience and mm-hmm. vocation. And like the particularities of the ways in which we, because I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily a subscriber to a sort of strong universalism. Mm-hmm. It, like, I mean, obviously, I, mean, I just think, I just think it's inadequate. Ultimately, mm-hmm. like, you, you could have a, only a very, very thin understanding of morality if you want to have like universal moral norms. Mm-hmm. I think that our our lives and ourselves are much more particular mm-hmm. than that, and I think that that is part of the beauty of how. God has created us. Mm-hmm. And so I want to affirm that and that sort of particularity and the interiority of conscience mm-hmm. and the inviability of conscience without them thinking that it's just relativism. Right. Because I think that in students' minds, then that just becomes like, well, if I really feel it in my heart and mm-hmm. God is telling me this, just do then I it's want. okay. And, you know, I I think that they're they're able to ultimately kind of see the difference in those positions mm-hmm. but but that's it's sometimes it's sometimes challenging to present the nuance there and and not get kind of lost and i think it's just related to what you were yeah talking about do you do you feel like in teaching ethics maybe i don't know the best way to phrase this but like i mean what would you say is the goal in teaching ethics like like what where is it that you want to get students to for the beginning of the semester the end of the semester is it is it sort of just like consciousness raising, just getting them to think about things they haven't thought about before? Is it like a deeper self reflection? Is it is it conversion in a certain sense? Is it mm. and and not in the sense of like learning objectives like written on a syllabus? But yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Probably in terms of my thinking about my so the ethics class that I teach is a. 300 level core class which mm-hmm. is a weird a strange animal <laughs> strange animal in its own right because like it it feels sometimes like it's not it's not quite a 100 level class but it is an intro class mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because a lot of them haven't had any kind of ethics courses before but they're juniors and seniors so you can expect a little more out of them but you're still kind of working at a basic level mm-hmm. and as part of the core i feel like it's something that should serve them for the rest of their lives, Mm -hmm. you know, should give them tools for better thinking about the decisions that they make Mm -hmm. um, and their priorities in life and their prudent pursuit of, (laughs) of the things that they genuinely value, Mm -hmm. you know, articulating an understanding of what the good life means. Mm -hmm. And by and large, I've actually found that students are, are really thoughtful when you when you ask the right questions mm-hmm. of them. And I found that across the board, you know, they 
they get something out of it. Even if it's just like, now I think about what I'm doing, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of like, is this, you know, is this a prudent use of my time or mm -hmm. am I being, you can tell I, I, my, my class is framed in terms of <laughs> cardinal and theological virtues, but then also, also getting them to think about things that they, in, in an issue, in an issue based right. sense, th really being deliberate about thinking through things that they're probably not. Mm -hmm. they've, they've probably not been real deliberate about thinking through. And I tend to lean towards the mundane in terms of the issues that I talk about in class. Like the things they're likely to actually deal with. Yeah, the things that they're likely to actually deal with and are likely to deal with without thinking, you know. And and I do I do, do a class on kind of end-of-life decision-making, and we, we talk somewhat about war and peace and we talk about gender and sexual identity and orientation and some of these potentially more like hot topics, mm -hmm. but, but a lot of it again is very mundane in terms of our habits of consumerism and our, our eating habits and our entertainment practices mm -hmm. and, or, or options and, you know, just the work we do. And, and I, I have found that sometimes it's not the classes that I would expect to be contentious mm -hmm. that that really are. And and I I think it's a, that's important. So in mm -hmm. terms of objectives, I think it's it is getting them to think about the substance of life, like not so much the peripheral kind of extraordinary dilemma type mm -hmm. questions, but the stuff of life and the habits and virtues and ways of thinking that allow them to make better mm -hmm. choices. Nice. How would you, how, or how for you does like your research and ethics like feed into the classroom or, or, or how mm -hmm. do they, how, how do your teaching and research shape one another? Like I know you've written on hospitality. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess at a, you know, at a very basic level, you know, another just pedagogical thing I do in the class is the second part of the class is like round, you know, like the room is in the round mm -hmm. and we have a discussion. And apparently I don't have a good poker face. <laughs> um, so like when, when students say something that I'm just, I just, it like inside me is just kind of burning with like, that's so ignorant and or those kinds of feelings I've, I, I really have to struggle to be. And, and this, like, I'm, I'm sure that people find is a general, a, another general sort of struggle in teaching is that wanting to be encouraging and supportive of students' contributions and opinions <laughs> and different ideas while also not affirming things that are just misguided mm -hmm. or uninformed. So hospitality and limits of hospitality, mm -hmm. which is kind of the, the, the point of the question that I asked in my, my book, in my dissertation. I mean, it's always a live kind of practical mm -hmm. question there. Like what, and, and frankly, in a Jesuit context in particular, mm -hmm. like, and, and I'm usually pretty clear about the, understanding of justice that I'm working with and the fact that that is a 
priority. Mm-hmm. And yes, you are free to disagree, but you know, you, this, like, you need to understand that I am coming from a particular mm-hmm. set of convictions in, in my own teaching. And yeah, so kind of having a sense of identity and openness mm-hmm. at the same time, which um, again was one of the discussions that I worked through in my dissertation. Lately, I've been writing actually about regional issues. So yeah, we're, um, we're in West Virginia. We, You're from West Virginia. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and loud with Laudato Si, mm. um, having recently come out in this discussion of integral ecology, mm-hmm. kind of being out there, it's that's been lately. I think. A, a greater focus mm-hmm. for me is is thinking about integral ecology in a region where economy and environment have often been seen as like these sort of opposing concerns. Mm-hmm. So that that also sometimes comes into teaching as well. Is that more of say like a, a research focus? Is it more of an advocacy focus? Like how would you sort of probably both? both like... It's both. Yeah. You know, I'm involved in an organization called the Catholic Committee of Appalachia mm-hmm. that's been around since the 1970s and has been involved in advocacy. In the in 1975 and 1995, they published a couple of, along with the Catholic bishops of Appalachia, published a couple of pastoral letters mm. called This Land is Home to Me and At Home in the Web of Life. Mm-hmm. And in addition to kind of these letters, the committee has been very involved in all kinds of development and pastoral ministry throughout the region. And since I've come back, I've, I've been connected with that group. Both they, they just recently issued a people's pastoral letter. So it was written kind of by the, drafted by the committee through the committee. And I helped with that process and have also been involved in statements and advocacy around water mm-hmm. issues in the area so that's kind of been been one area there it's one thing actually though i i feel like it's been a struggle because i think i had a vision particularly in graduate school of really wanting to maintain both kind of an activist stance in Mm -hmm. the world and an academic Hmm. life and i've found that you know having entered a quote, real job, like that's hard. Yeah. You know, it's, it's for a lot of reasons. It's hard time being probably foremost Mm. among those, but also, you know, I think that there's this sort of underlying suspicion of scholarship that is too activist Mm -hmm. and maybe not, you know, not, not from everybody, but I, but it can come across as biased. Yeah. 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 yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Having an an ax to grind or, Mm -hmm. Something like that. And then it becomes this perception that the, in a way, the activism is driving the research Mm -hmm. rather than like the research leading to activist conclusions Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I think on principle, like, I guess I don't have a problem with activism driving research. Sure. But as well, provided it doesn't compromise the research, I suppose. And that's just always kind of a. Yeah. I mean, there's, 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 it's a broader question. There needs to be an integrity to the, the sort of the critical process Mm -hmm. and the, you know, you, you follow the questions where they go, and if they go towards conclusions that maybe you didn't foresee or even mm-hmm. don't like, you still mm-hmm. have to mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. honest to that. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and it's, but it's easy to be critiqued if it 
seems as though like there's a there's a thing that you really care about that oh well of course you of course you care about you you, yeah. you like the encyclical because you already care about yeah, the environment yeah, yeah. and so right well and the other thing the other thing is and this is one thing that I've found and one thing that I think we even see in our our current political climate is that nuance is not conducive conducive to like taking a strong unambiguous position <laughs> on things you know yeah. I, I i really i think that you know you don't you don't have like signs rally signs that have like all of the nuance and yeah, stuff lots in of modifiers it. yeah yeah exactly and, exactly yeah. insofar as <laughs> this coal company is da, 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 if in like, fact it's the case <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> So there's almost a method methodologic I don't know like maybe that's not the right word but there's a but there's almost a there's a tension there. I, I was wondering partly how that you navigate that for yourself insofar as you do, but also in terms of what do you think like what do you think scholarship can offer to activism or offer to advocacy work or mm-hmm. you know like you work with the Catholic Worker House here in, in, in Wheeling, like, mm. what what can it offer, for, is it, can, it, can it offer something for that, distinct certainly from, you know, time, care, presence, things like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I think scholarship can offer the same kinds of things to various forms of activism that I think it offers generally when mm-hmm. it's done well. And I guess I've never been, I've never been particularly drawn to what can sometimes feel like scholarship for its own sake. Mm -hmm. I continue to be stimulated by practical kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. But I think that uh, in terms of contributing something to, say, a local Catholic worker house or, you know, a movement against mountaintop removal or something like that, I think that... I think that being able to articulate principles mm-hmm. and kind of know where they came from and have a historical sense of the context in which maybe a particular situation has emerged and how it's changed. And um, I think those sort of general ways of fostering deeper and broader consciousness mm-hmm. and thoughtfulness about what we're doing. So it's not purely like a kind of emotional, I mean, and not that I think that it is for, I'm not saying that it is for most people that they're caught up in activism through this sort of purely (laughs) emotional kind of reason. But I I think, I think that in terms of, I know that this is probably going to contradict what I said a minute ago, but, but our, our strongest arguments are generally those that are aware of the other side and aware mm-hmm. of the nuance and aware of the challenge of like holding a particular position or a, being having a stake in something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess I can see academic work as fostering just a kind of deeper thoughtfulness yeah. and a deeper awareness. Yeah. And there, there are different kinds of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, and, and, and I don't know, maybe it's just the election season we're in or, or mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like, you know, sort of emotional persuasion yeah. is it's very dominant, very powerful. Mm-hmm. But there is mm-hmm. also a kind of sort of a logical persuasion that people can be open to and can be swayed by arguments and swayed by evidence and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. can potentially project themselves outside of their own experience to, to think through that. Yeah. So, yeah. One thing I, I was wondering about, you know, what what are maybe some 
I don't know, like major influences on you, whether that's, you know, particular figures or mentors or particular texts mm. or even crystallizing experiences in some sense, hmm. Bo- both maybe in how, you know, you, you've come to have a certain balance among your teaching, your research, your advocacy work, but also in terms of just like how you think about ethics, how you think about theology. Mm. Yeah. Well, Margaret Farley was my dissertation director. And so I don't feel like I can answer that question without mentioning her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anybody who knows her knows that in addition to being a really, a really top-rate scholar, she is a deeply pastoral person. Mm. You know, there was never a meeting about my dissertation that she didn't wasn't sort of first and foremost concerned with how are you doing like really <laughs> in a genuine way in a genuine kind of way yeah. yeah or you know or that I've seen her at a conference when she hasn't been sort of genuinely interested in how things are going mm-hmm. and and I feel very fortunate to have seen that modeled mm-hmm. but I think that and this may have been more of a confirmation I guess of uh, of a sort of basic intuition or basic inclination that I Mm -hmm. have towards practical kinds of questions. And, you know, one thing I think that she says this at the beginning of uh, the just her just love book, Mm -hmm. like ethicists don't get to set their own agendas often, Hmm. you know, in the sense of if we understand ourselves to be responding to the signs of the times, Mm -hmm. then then there's a certain way in which we are our own agenda emerges in dialogue with our culture and with the signs of the times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so she kind of starts it out and says like, I never, I never thought I'd be writing on sexual ethics and bioethics and these things that I've written on, mm-hmm. but those were like the pressing questions. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I mean, certainly my dissertation ar- arose from a very practical set of circumstances mm-hmm. of living in a community house and trying to navigate mm. the limits of hospitality in that oh, particular situation. And, you know, even kind of, uh, interest in, as I was saying a while ago, like coming back to Appalachia and being sort of immersed in some of the problems and tensions and natural beauty of the region, like all of yeah. those things are important. So I, I think that I I'd say at one level, like I, I'm influenced by this sort of what I would identify as a feminist or a liberationist sort of starting with experience sure. and starting with the the questions and problems that arise out of our practical mm-hmm. lived realities and struggles. So that said, you know, I think that there have been a number of people within what we'd broadly call feminist and liberation theologies that have kind of shaped how I think about the task of theology. I also think that ethics and spirituality need to be held together much more closely than they often are. Because I think thinking about the good life and thinking about the virtues and thinking about our intentions without thinking about kind of our our day-to-day lived spiritual practices and disciplines and conception of our relationship with God and that in which is ultimately meaningful. Mm-hmm. I think it's lacking something. And I, I think that... Is that something you see in your students too? What do you mean? Do your students have a sense of uh, any kind of integration between their spiritual life and ethical life or their, uh, or like forms of reflection or... It depends on the students. 
It okay. depends. You know, I mean, yeah. there are some students who are impressively mature when mm -hmm. it comes to those kinds of things. And then there are a lot that have never thought uh, at all about how, you know, what we might call spirituality relates to ethical questions and kind of daily living. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Henry Nowen was significant in writing my dissertation. In the last few years, I've been really, I think, significantly shaped by Thomas Merton mm. in kind of his framing of spiritual mm -hmm. lives. Yeah. I can imagine, like for some of my students, but even really, to be honest, for me, that I, I reckon, like, I, there is a connection between my spirituality and my sort of ethical, mm -hmm. moral life, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's not one that I can describe or, mm -hmm. or distinguish in a certain way. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I... And, and I don't in any way suggest that as like a, I'm just highly integrated. I think it's a, yeah like it's, it's almost a lack of maybe like the right tools for critically thinking about it or, mm -hmm. or experiences on which to reflect with or. And I think that, you know, there are definitely elements of Ignatian spiritual traditions that Ignatian mm -hmm. spirituality that are helpful mm -hmm. that way. So, yeah. Yeah. It seems like, would you, well, would you say maybe like a, a category that's helpful for thinking about that would be something like desire. Like the way that, I mean, there's, there's sort of a, I've, I've had, I think some mm. of my students have had trouble mm -hmm. thinking about mm. desire in, as an ethical category uh -huh. in not, not because, not because it's good or bad to want particular things in their minds, but because it, desire seems almost like it's just a thing that happens. It's just a thing that happens to you. Like you can control you. what you do with it, yeah. but that you yeah. have it is out yeah. of your control. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that I, I think that when we talk about, and I, in, in teaching, so for example, for example of this, around that very question. I love so this in talking about the virtue of temperance, mm. we'll also talk about asceticism and sacrifice and fasting. And so it's like, is fasting or pen, a penitential kind of mm -hmm. practices, uh, are those temperate? Mm -hmm. And, and, and how might they, how might our disciplines in this kind of specialized or spiritual context then be, play an important role in forming our desires mm -hmm. and informing, yeah, our, the, how those are integrated in our overall personhood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just in terms of how I might make those kind of connections around that particular yeah. question. Mm -hmm. So as we, we kind of wrap up, we like to end with some maybe less serious questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I also, sorry, I just no, kind of no, had like a, no, I think that, you know, we, in ethics classes, obviously, many people, many of us, I talk a lot about character, mm -hmm. you know, and integrity and like kind of overall ordering of loves. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I'm, I'm also an Augustinian, like in, in certain, uh, I mean, who's, uh, who's not in certain ways, but yeah, this idea that, that it's, it's, it's not a question of loving, but it's a question of how yeah. and what and how, how that love is ordered. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of the broader question really. Mm -hmm. And in terms of forming desires it's it's really i don't know i think that i think that when we have too much of a parts view of ourselves it's mm -hmm. like there's this desiring part of me and i need to make sure that it's doing the right thing as a separate kind of issue or question 
that produces kind of diminished or distorted picture of of what our loves and our desires yeah really are it's it's been interesting i i teach both both undergraduates and i teach uh men who are becoming deacons mm-hmm. like i have these two very very different mm-hmm. groups, and they have you know they have different levels of passion and different levels of preparation and all sorts of things but there's a degree to which i've noticed at least for some students in both groups there's a struggle with the idea of, of character mm-hmm. as a as a way of thinking about morality and ethics because there's still this kind of desire for like certainty, for mm-hmm. clarity, for mm-hmm. rules, for manuals, for things like that. Yeah. And like they they want an answer. Yeah. And so like we'll in one of my undergrad ethics classes, like we'll do deontology, we'll do utilitarianism, mm-hmm. we'll do, you know, virtue and character. And they can figure out pretty easily the answer in deontology and in utilitarianism because they have like a, like the rubric is kind of clear or they can at least figure out like, uh, how would you justify two different choices? Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm, that kind of thing. mm -hmm. They, they struggle with the the virtue approach because, Mm -hmm. and partly it's maybe how I'm explaining it, but partly it, it seems to be this, like, if you're a decent person, you will do decent things. And that kind of idea of character as forming how you act is such mm. a struggle. Like, how do you get, like, well, then how do you get to be that person? Yeah. The good person who makes good choices. And Yeah, you do it for a while, yeah. you know? Yeah. You, yeah, you do it and you keep doing it. And I, I can't, I, and I've actually, this is one thing that's really evolved, I guess. And, and not that I was ever like a, there, here's the answer kind of person in my mm-hmm teaching but I've become much more explicit about the uncertainty that mm-hmm. is involved in in ethical decision making and being a good person yeah and, you know I this this semester I'm having students submit these little note cards of like here's what the reading's about and here's a question I have about mm-hmm. it and I'm amazed at the persistence of these questions of like how do you know you're really doing the right, like Mm -hmm. whether if it's like, how do you like, if we're talking about prudence or conscience or how do you really know that the choice that you're making is God's will? And I'm like, well, you don't, you You know, you like you, you live, you live it out, (laughs) you live it out and you keep seeking and discerning and you make adjustments and you learn from mistakes and 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 you don't have certainty beforehand, and mm-hmm. you don't have certainty afterwards either. Right. And it, I I think that, yeah that seems and I understand that I mean it, like it's not unreasonable that that's frustrating because I can understand want it like mm-hmm. wanting to feel justified in what you're doing and I tell them all the time there's no algorithm yeah like for you know which I get I get a lot of these questions you know in terms of discerning a career choice or mm. should I go to this grad school or this grad school and how do we make these decisions and how do you know you've made the right one and mm-hmm. and again like it's it's messy yeah I sometimes tell them there's mostly just better and worse choices mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's not always like a clear mm-hmm. absolute right mm-hmm. and absolute wrong mm-hmm. choice mm-hmm. I mean, but then again like it, maintaining that we were just, we were saying earlier mm-hmm. maintaining that sense of the ambiguity and underdetermination of our choices while at the same time saying, but it's not relativism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, and I, every semester I say several times, like, 
there may not be one right answer to this question, but there are plenty of wrong ones. <laughs> so, so, you know, like mm-hmm. we can, we, it, the fact that we can't know everything doesn't mean that we can't say anything. Right. That's really helpful. So less serious. Questions. Less serious On to less questions. serious things. <laughs> so first question, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? Oh, you can go either way on this. This is hard because I do music ministry and there are a lot of... I feel like you'd have a lot of strong feelings on this. Yeah. I'm going to have to just kind of like give you an answer because in terms of favorite, I love almost anything from Teze. Okay. Um, And I don't know if part of that is rooted in the fact that I did grow up singing a cappella and singing harmony. Uh, And so there's that. I love a lot of Advent music. I like... It's funny because I don't think of there being that much Advent music. There is. It just seems like all like the church just plays O Como Como Emmanuel. Yeah, that's, that's because they don't do it right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a beautiful French carol called O Come Divine Messiah mm. that has a lovely alto part, and I'm an alto. Ah. So a lot of things that anything that has a kind of interesting alto part, I'll sometimes appreciate. I don't like the song, and I don't know what title it goes by, but it's like... It's like, will you call and come and follow me if I but call your name? It just sounds really like sing songy to me. Yeah. So. All right. Very good. And I don't think I can identify that as like a, like this is my least favorite song ever. Mm hmm. But. Yeah, yeah. No, I know the one you're talking about. I can't think of what the title is, but. My taste is pretty traditional, actually, when it comes to liturgical music. Huh? Not I like not chorale, chorale and... type stuff. And... <laughs> okay. Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? <laughs> one of my, <laughs> one of my, um, I, this is not my answer, but, <laughs> but it makes me think of a, a, one of my, my housemates in grad school used to say that my spiritual gift was the gift of salad. Mm. And it was because I made a lot of salad. We had community dinners at mm-hmm. our house and stuff. And so, you know, I guess I could I could be a patron saint of, like, potluck dinners and community <laughs> gatherings. I really like those a lot. Actually, in our, in our theology seminar for majors and minors on creation, mm-hmm. this term, like, like uh, we're having several potluck dinners and the mm-hmm. students' contributions are actually a part of their participation. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. Man, that's an amazing. I just, th- I just yeah, think yeah. that, I just think that actually, like, a, I think that the eschatological banquet is is going to be potluck, and <laughs> and that there's just a lot, there's just a lot of beauty. And here again, like, I'm probably betraying my like low church roots, mm-hmm. but I, I just, I think that there's a lot of. There's a lot that's wonderful mm-hmm. about potluck meals. That's so. a tr- tremendous answer. That's so great. <laughs> I'd be the patron saint of <laughs> potluck meals. <laughs> I, and maybe there would be something else, but that's what... Kind no, of... that, and I mean, it's a great, like, Eucharistic image in its own way, mm. right? Like, bringing mm. your offering to the table and... Yeah. I, and, and for our students, I describe it as, like, I see this as a... As a analogy or symbol symbol for our sem like what a seminar is supposed to be mm-hmm. like yes i am probably providing kind of a main course mm-hmm. but 
people have to bring stuff mm-hmm. if it's if it's going to be a good meal and mm-hmm. if if it's going to be a whole that's more than the sum of its mm-hmm. parts. It's going to nourish and mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. If you were to do a different job or career than the one you're doing, mm-hmm. what do you what do you think you would have done or would you have liked to have done? I have a couple answers to this question. My kind of fantasy job um like i i i have kind of a long running again kind of like background fantasy about having a restaurant mm. and i actually have a very specific image of like the the restaurant that i would want to run and do you, kind do you already have like work. the menu in mind yeah and... totally okay totally hours operating hours menu <laughs> cut like design like decor so uh Maybe you're detecting a theme here in terms of like it would not be a potluck restaurant, but um, that, that would be an interesting idea. That for would a restaurant, be an interesting though. concept. <laughs> you for have to sure. bring your own sides. <laughs> <laughs> no, it'd be like a it'd be like a vegetarian coffee shop cafe mm-hmm. kind of place. That so that's one answer. But I also I also and this is kind of increasingly oh, sh- shouldn't be a surprise given some of my answers. I could see myself doing kind of a counseling with a, like a kind of pastoral counseling kind of work, mm-hmm. spiritual direction type mm. things. And in particular, I guess, and this is something that is more recently emerging for me. I've had type one diabetes as long as I can remember mm-hmm. and have never really until recently thought about integrating my relationship with my health and my body into kind of a a theological or spiritual frame. Mm. And so increasingly I I could see doing some kind of counseling or direction with people who face long-term and chronic illness. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I guess those are kind of like, those are serious answers to what maybe weren't meant to be. Serious questions. No, no, but they're well thought out answers. That's amazing. That's really wonderful. Well, and this goes back to my, like, I've sort of stumbled into this academic yeah, theology yeah, yeah. thing. I've given a lot of thought to mm-hmm. maybe this isn't for me mm-hmm. and what else would I do? And I, the, the truth is I, I really like teaching a yeah. lot. And often when it comes down to it, it's increasingly harder and harder for me to imagine my life where I wasn't doing some kind of mm-hmm teaching yeah what is a what is your like guilty pleasure song tv show movie anything like that i mean i guess there's a lot of there's a lot of pop music that i feel like is kind of guilty pleasure stuff for a while although she's she's kind of faded from view i had this sort of fascination with britney spears Mm -hmm. like just what's going on there? <laughs> um, and, but I did kind of, but I also kind of liked her music. Like I, I play acoustic guitar and I can cover a couple Britney Spears songs and it's always good for mm-hmm. like a little chuckle and a little sing along. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, she's not, she's not quite so much in the spotlight anymore, but, but there was certainly a while that I said, this was, this is kind of a guilty pleasure. I'm a little bit embarrassed <laughs> that I find her so fascinating. <laughs> Somehow I kind of do. And lastly, uh, what would the title of your biography or memoir be? 
That's a hard question. <laughs> and maybe I'm thinking about it. Maybe I'm thinking about it too much. Like, maybe I should just sort of go with, like, well, she this. But I actually think that those are, <laughs> those are kind of... I mean, those are things I take seriously because, first of all, I think titles are actually, titles are really Mm -hmm. important. And I think the title of an autobiography or memoir in particular. When you come up with titles for, like, papers or whatnot, do you you aim for, like, clever, punny, like, or, like, is that that a factor for you? I think that there's a certain poetry. Okay. Like, like there's a, there's a, you know, or or rhythm. Mm -hmm. There's, like, a, a rhythm to a good title. And there might be a little bit of cleverness, but I wouldn't say that that's what I, that's what I'd go mm-hmm. for. And maybe part of why I'm struggling with this is I really don't feel like I've figured it out mm. yet. You know, like I, I feel like a very unfinished story. Mm-hmm. And to be very frank, I think that there might be things that I would, if I got to a point in my life, that I was actually going to write a memoir, things, delicate things I might disclose that I wouldn't, mm-hmm. that might shape my title. Yeah, you know? I got you. I got you. So it's kind of a way in which like the narrative thread isn't entirely clear yet. Yes. So it's hard. Yeah. To, yeah. 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 Basically, it's hard to name it. Basically, like I, and I, I have ideas for like what that narrative thread might mm-hmm. be, but I still, I still feel very unfinished, mm-hmm. and I feel like there are. You know, just even in recent weeks, sort of questions and things that have mm-hmm. come up. So at this point, maybe my title would be a work in progress or something, totally like, fair. something like that. Totally fair. We will, we will follow up with you someday in the future. All right. When, it, when, All right. when it's coming out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, and that gives me a good question to think about, though. <laughs> I, I've journaled my entire life. Oh, yeah? Like since I was like nine. I've kept so I've got lots of material um, <laughs> for for said autobiography mm-hmm. or memoir when it comes out. But yeah, I mean, like there are there are a number of different threads that I think mm-hmm. might emerge as something prominent. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure at this point. I guess right. I journaled pretty voraciously in high school. And I have not yet had the courage to go back and read them. Mm. And I, I'm, it can be pretty embarrassing. I'm deeply curious about what that will be like. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. No, it can be very embarrassing for sure to kind of go back and be like, "Oh, I can't believe I was so <laughs> caught up in that," or whatever. Well, thank you so much for sitting with me and, and talking with me. I greatly appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 